Hey, everybody. This episode has a fleeting producership credit, and nobody jumped on it. Becoming a producer of The History Of is implausibly straightforward, and I would be happy to vouch for anyone who receives that title. So listen to the end of the show to learn how you can become a producer. And that's enough for now. Let's get to some parachuting, shall we? This is episode 44 of the History of Podcast. I'm Robert. I apologize for Sam's absence today. I had to record this episode in a pinch, but today's episode is the history of parachuting. And I'm glad you're tuning in. And you know what? You just became a little bit less afraid of heights by listening to the history of. I can sense it, but you'll have to test it out for yourself. Maybe go parachuting. Then again, maybe not. To start, I have the egg carton count. And this week's Ed Carden count is 54. So, uh, yeah, uh, if you're new here, that means I have 54 foam egg cartons all around this room to improve the, uh, the sound insulation, the sound dampening of this room, make it a better studio. So let's get into some parachuting history. So the parachute's history starts with some vague accounts, as a lot of things do, from ancient Italy and China of, quote, huge wing-like cloaks used to break one's fall. Um, and so, of course, this is all very vague. And then we get to uh, the famous Leonardo da Vinci parachute. Um, and so his parachute, so picture in your head, um, a pyramid 23 feet high with a 23-foot square base. Stay with me. And so this pyramid is made of a wooden frame, and the entire thing is covered in linen. Uh, And then you have your familiar strings, uh, like you do with a parachute, coming down from the corners of the pyramid to uh, suspend some very brave person. That's what this Leonardo da Vinci parachute would have looked like. And da Vinci never created a prototype of his design. Um, And over the years, several people assumed that it wasn't really feasible, that it wouldn't really have worked. But in 2000, a skydiving daredevil named Adrian Nichols uh, tested da Vinci's design with all of the original materials. And the parachute weighed 80, 183 pounds, but it worked. He jumped from an air balloon at uh, 10,000 feet because, you know, an air balloon would have been closest to the most accessible thing at the time, even though uh, I think da Vinci was a little before air balloons. Not sure about that. Um, so, yeah, don't quote me about that. But to be safe... Um, Nichols, uh, finished the last 2000 feet with a modern style parachute, um, because, you know, it would have been kind of a close call to try to land directly under that pyramid of a parachute. You don't want that wood coming down on you, 183 pounds. Uh, but still Leonardo da Vinci, nor any of his guinea pigs, they were not the first to make, uh, the parachute jump, the first parachute jump. The first man to get the guts to jump out of the air would be André-Jacques Garneron. Now, during the French Revolution, he was arrested and put in a Hungarian prison. And of course, you have loads of free time in prison, and André-Jacques Garneron was looking for a means of escape, and he sketched a design for a parachute that would unfold like an umbrella. And it was similar to da Vinci's concept in that the uh, what would be like the ribs of an umbrella 
would be made of wood and the fabric would be made of silk. And just like about uh, every parachute, the strings would come down from the edges of the canopy and converge. But instead of connecting to a harness like uh, modern parachutes would, the strings would attach to a basket, just like a hot air balloon. And this will be more important in a moment. Um, and also, André Jacques Garneron's parachute was 23 feet across, just like da Vinci's. That must be, you know, probably the golden number to get the right amount of surface area. And also, it's it's important to note that he studied physics, so Garneron wasn't just making all this stuff up. He he knew what he was talking about. Uh, but André Jacques Garneron never he never got to make a parachute in prison, of course, but he started developing some prototypes after he got out of prison. And the way it worked, he attached a hot air balloon to the top of his contraption and ascended to 2,000 feet. And once he reached his desired height, instead of pressing the elevator level down button, he cut the cord between the balloons and his big umbrella. And so this guy was literally Mary Poppins because he was riding down on a big umbrella. Um, but the parachute would sway back and forth violently on its way down, and it had a hard landing. But André Jacques Garneron was crazy enough to do it over 200 times. And this was all only somewhat useful for weather study and limited military purposes um, for the next hundred years. And the advent of practical parachuting would really be dependent on the airplane. So let's jump to St. Petersburg, Russia at the turn of the 20th century. Airplanes were still pretty new at this time, and there's an air show in St. Petersburg, and one of the pilots, Leo Matsevich, crashes his plane and perishes. And as you can imagine, the crowd watching this is mostly outsiders to aviation, um, and one of those outsiders was Russian actor Gleb Kotelnikov. And he would be moved by Matsevich's death and go on to invent the first practical parachute. And several parachute designs were already going around uh, during this time, but most of them operated with strings that were attached to the plane itself. And so the way this old, uh, this current old parachute worked, as the pilot falls from the plane, his own weight would pull uh, on the strings, pulling the parachute open. Too many moving parts and too many things that can go wrong. And Gleb Kotelnikov's revision on previous models resembled the modern backpack and harness parachute we know today. So we can really thank him for that. But some of his uh, failed designs before this included a parachute helmet and a parachute belt. And Kotelnikov's final version was unique in that it was attached to the pilot at all times, and the chute could be opened either automatically or by pulling a cord. And he named it the RK-1, the Russian Kotelnikov-1. I hardly believe he chose to name it that, uh, because, you know, we're talking about Russia here. But regardless, he tested his invention on a race car, and it came to a full stop. So you could say uh, Kotelnikov also invented the drag chute. And Gleb Kotelnikov had some success in marketing and selling the RK-1, and later uh, his second version, the RK-2, in Europe. But several inventors soon started copying his designs. They weren't really inventors, I guess they're just copiers. And the U.S. Army uh, also revised Kotelnikov's parachute design, namely James Floyd Smith and Leslie Irvin. Uh, and this was in order to make their own U.S. version. Sounds like a very U.S. thing to do. But 
World War I broke out soon after Kotelnikov's invention of the first backpack parachute, which put the RK-1 and all of its copies into large-scale use. And remember, the airplane was also still in its early stages at this time. The Germans and the Austro-Hungarians used parachutes as pilots' uh, means of escape from uh, failing airplanes during battle. Not everybody used um, parachutes during this time. A lot of pilots just, if they crashed, they crashed. But having a parachute could be good or bad depending on if you're fighting on home turf. So think of it this way. If you get shot down over your own territory, you can safely make it to the ground, get in a new plane, and return to battle. But if you got shot down over the opponent's territory, then uh, you glide down in a parachute all peacefully, and you have soldiers waiting on the ground to take you prisoner of war. Um, And in November 1918, American Colonel Billy Mitchell planned to drop troops uh, by parachute onto Metz, France. uh, So America would have had the first paratroopers, but Mitchell's plans were canceled when the Armistice Treaty was signed. And Paratroopers would not really become a reality until after World War I. Really, we're talking about World War II. Germany was officially the first country to drop soldiers from airplanes, and it was part of their famous uh, Blitzkrieg or Lightning War tactic in World War II. But Soviet Russia did it over the snow without a parachute, hoping for the best. A lot of people know that paratroopers were key in America's victory in the D-Day invasion, but not a lot of people know that the U.S. military has only used five different parachute models over the years. And the military replaced the classic T-10 parachute a few years ago with the T-11 parachute. Now, I know that's just like words, but the old one looks like the, the classic circular parachute, you know, the, the one the toy soldiers have in Toy Story. But the new, uh, this new uh, parachute that the military is using it's all bo- it's like a big square it's like a box and it has slits in the corners it looks really weird in my opinion but i guess it also looks like it could be more stable um not sure i haven't i haven't parachuted myself but when i was doing research i actually i had this brain fart and i somehow thought that the tactic of paratrooping was abandoned or decommissioned after world war ii but that is definitely not true don't listen to me The military still drops plenty of people from airplanes. And here's something you don't hear every day. Some aviation geeks might already know this, but some planes have parachutes. The SR-71 and various space shuttles, and I'm sure other planes as well, have chutes to slow them down once they land. But what about an airplane that can pull a chute in mid-air? In 1998, Cirrus Aircraft Company rolled out what they called their CAPS technology that stands for Cirrus Airframe Parachute System, CAPS. And they put it on the SR-20, which is a small single-engine airplane, and now their higher-performance model, the SR-22, comes with a parachute that can deploy in case of emergency. And it sounds like something a first grader would invent with crayons on a piece of construction paper, but it's saved lives. Up to this point, parachutes, I've only talked about parachutes being a utility, And it's time to look at the recreational side of parachuting, which is a good way to think of skydiving. Skydiving as a sport goes all the way back to the 1940s, and the first World Parachuting Championships were held in Yugoslavia in 1951. And the first men's champion was France's own Pierre Lard, 
and the women's champion was Monique Laroche, which also sounds like a French name. And this brings up a good point that France has always been ahead of the U.S. when it comes to aviation. Hot air balloons came out of France, and it's still debated between America and France who was the first to fly in an airplane. Of course, in the U.S., the story has always been that we were the first because we're the U.S., that's what we do. But back to parachuting. All the parachutes used up until this point were designed as military parachutes, and the first recreational parachute was designed in 1957 by Jacques Estelle. And just note, that's a French name. In 1965, we saw the introduction of Ram Air parachutes, as opposed to those umbrella army-looking ones I mentioned earlier. Ram Air parachutes are smaller and more arc-like, kind of picture a paraglider. Um, and yeah, so that's that's going to be the more more recreational parachute. Uh, and I think might have some military use. I don't think so. Don't quote me on that. And a few years after the Ram Air parachute we get tandem skydiving, which was invented in 1983. And this allows anyone to skydive without the extensive training and, you know, just be strapped to an instructor. And I'd say that's the biggest thing on the skydiving timeline up to this point. But this episode would not be complete without mentioning the world's highest skydive. On October 14th, 2012, Felix Baumgartner jumped from an air balloon at an altitude of a whopping 128,000 feet. That's 24 miles up in the air. And this was all sponsored by Red Bull, of course, because it's Red Bull. What did you expect? If you've seen pictures or videos of the jump, it looks like he's jumping from space, but technically the end of the atmosphere and the beginning of space is at the Kármán line, which is 327,000 feet. So I guess he kind of had a way to go. But still, that set a record for the highest skydive the highest man air balloon, and it was also the first time a skydiver has broken the sound barrier. And Felix Baumgartner got up to over 800 miles per hour on his dive, and they knew this would uh, be a record, so the jump date was actually 65 years to the day after Chuck Yeager first broke the speed of sound in the Bell X-1. Thanks for listening to the more interesting than you thought history of skydiving. If you made it this far, you're a real one. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, don't listen to the next episode just yet. I'd appreciate if you could take just 10 seconds to rate or write a review for The History Of. It really does make the episodes better. And if you think you have a friend who might enjoy this podcast, tell them about The History Of, their new favorite podcast, and you might just make their day. I'd like to thank you all for your gracious, loyal support, and until the next one, I'm Robert Lakatosh. Thanks for listening.